the church I grew up in didn't follow the liturgical calendar, so it wasn't until I was an adult and attending a Presbyterian church that I, that I really started to experience Advent that just ended for us. And I've, um, I've really come to appreciate the sense of anticipation and wonder about this great thing that is going to, to happen. I think it mirrors well the expectation that the Jewish people had for the arrival of their Messiah. And then we encounter the, um, the idyllic nativity scene, right, with Joseph and Mary and the baby and shepherds and angels and the wise men. And there's just this wonderful buildup to this idyllic scene. And I think it's worth asking now that that's over is what happens next? What's the next thing that happens in the Christmas story? I've never had to do this before, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to give a a PG warning since people are watching this at home. The story that comes next is pretty brutal. And so parents with young children or parents maybe that have lost a young child may want to think carefully about which family members are watching this sermon. I just wanted to give you that opportunity to have a little discernment. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this Christmas season, this expectation that the Messiah will come, the sense of renewal, the sense that there's something new afoot. I think a lot of us feel that with what's been going on in the world. God, as we look into your word, we ask that your spirit would guide us and that we would encounter your truth and your truth would transform us into the people that you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I get to the passage, I want to give you a little bit of background on this. The main characters in our story today are the Magi and Herod. Um, the Magi, now you've, you've probably heard the famous Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Um, it was a lie. Uh, they weren't kings. We don't know if there were three of them. They brought three gifts, so it's certainly logical to assume that, but who knows, maybe some of them went halvesies on a gift uh, for the baby. And they weren't from the Orient. They, they believed they were probably from Persia. In all likelihood, they were Zoroastrian priests. They were astrologers who looked at the night sky to discern things that were coming. And they felt that they had been told through that process that a new king of the Jews had been born. And so they came to the logical place for that, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. There they encountered Herod the Great. Herod had been made the king of the Jews by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. He was a great builder. He built um, huge stadiums and monuments, altars, fortresses, and rebuilt the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. But he was also known for his brutality, particularly to anyone that was a threat to his power. He arranged the execution of one wife, three sons, a mother-in-law, a brother-in-law, an uncle, and many, many others. So the Magi appeared in Jerusalem to talk to Herod. Um, And that was the logical place for them to go to. But as you can understand, Herod was rather disturbed by this query. You see, people that are in power don't want to hear that there's somebody new coming into that same power. 
he was considered the king of the Jews. He didn't want to hear about this newborn baby that was going to be one, even though as the leader of the Jewish people, he should have been excited by the, by the advent, by the arrival of the Messiah that, that they had all longed for. Herod got his, um, his uh, top people together, and he said, so where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they said it was in Bethlehem. So he let the Magi know that that's where they should go, but he said, after you find this baby, let me know so that I can come and worship him as well. Matthew 2.11 states that the Magi found Mary in a house with the baby Jesus. So this is another little twist compared to the traditional nativity scene. Uh, scholars believe this is months, maybe even years later after Jesus' birth. So the wise men weren't there on Christmas morning. And in fact, when I was growing up, I, um, I, I discovered this as a young man. And so I decided to enforce a historically accurate nativity scene in my household. And so when my parents would set up the nativity scene on the mantle, I'd always go take the wise men and move them off to the east because I wanted this to be done. And of course, then they would find that really annoying, which was part of the plan. And then they would move the wise men back, and I'd wait till they weren't looking, and then I'd move them back again, and we'd go back and forth and back and forth, and it was hilarious. Um, and eventually, they just um, wrote me out of the will. Um, <clears throat> the Magi are warned in a dream... Um, to not go back and let Herod know, and so they left the country by another route, thereby saving themselves and Jesus. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, say this. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem, and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's a very... Um, 2020 kind of twist on the Christmas story, um, isn't it? It's a horrible story. There's no getting around that. It, it begs the question, why did the author of the gospel put this story in here? It doesn't appear anywhere else. It doesn't appear in the other gospels. It doesn't appear anywhere else in ancient text. And in fact, some scholars believe that Matthew... Um, created it as a literary device because he was writing primarily to the Jewish people and he wanted to create that correlation in their mind between Jesus and Moses. And if you remember in the beginning of Exodus that the Pharaoh was concerned that the Jewish people were starting to outnumber the Egyptian people, so he ordered that all newborn male babies be killed. And Moses' mother saved him um, and arranged for him to be rescued. 
Other scholars, and I tend to think this, is that it did happen, but it's not quite as bad as it sounds because Bethlehem was a very small, sparsely populated area. They say it was maybe, uh, maybe about a dozen children that were killed in this. It's still absolutely horrific, but that could explain why it isn't mentioned anywhere else. And it's certainly within the boundaries of Herod's morality to do something like this because of the way he dispensed with threats. We want to skip over stories like this. They're uncomfortable. But I think it, there's some things we can learn from this. And I think one of the things that we can learn is from the moment of Jesus' birth, he was a threat to people in power. Now, why was he a threat even just being born? Herod had a fairly tenuous grip on power. The Romans had come in and taken over the nation of Israel, um, and they put Herod in charge. So he had to, he was in this middle ground between trying to placate the people, but keep the Romans happy. And he knew at any time that balance could go off and he could end his, his reign. Jesus' threat didn't end with his birth as the Messiah. It just picked up steam as time went on. His whole life and his whole teachings were a threat to people in power. And it's amazing where you can find them. Mary's song in Luke, 15, in Luke 1, the Magnificat, said he, he has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. And don't forget that story where Jesus uh, enters the temple and it, and it says that he had braided a whip ahead of time. This was a planned thing that he was doing. He came in and saw his father's house desecrated by greed. And he overturned the tables and drove the people out of the temple courtyard. Not the passive, nice Jesus that so often we have in our minds, right? And then if you really want to see a section, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus goes off on this epic rant against the Pharisees, just over and over and over again. Here's one section of it, verses 27 through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, you and I have kind of a skewed view of the Pharisees because Jesus is so harsh with them. But in his culture at the time, these were highly respected men. These were the elders. These were the wise men of the culture. And they had enormous authority and enormous influence. For Jesus to go up against those people was really quite something. Jesus took on the political and the religious leaders of his time. And they killed him because of it. It was a direct result of his threat to them that led to his crucifixion. And he told his disciples that the same thing was going to happen to them, that they were also going to be persecuted 
after he left. And church tradition tells us that's exactly what happened. We believe that that John was the only disciple that died of natural causes. All others were martyred. Some were beheaded. Some were fed to wild animals. Some were crucified. Tradition says that Peter was sentenced to be crucified, and he asked to be crucified upside down because he refused to be executed in the same manner as his Lord. He said that would be too much of an honor. It went on this way for several hundred years. The church was heavily persecuted until the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. And then in 380, the Christian religion actually became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So now things had switched. The ones that were persecuted were now in a position of power and authority. And guess what they did with that? They went after fellow believers whose doctrine was different than theirs, and they persecuted them and killed them. How quickly power corrupts those who gain it. There's that old saying, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Maybe Jesus never meant for us to be the ones in power. So what does this have to do with us? You say, Jim, that's a, that's a cute little history lesson there. But what does this have to do with us? Jesus and his disciples were threats to people in power in their culture. We are following Jesus, so it begs the question, are we threats to the powerful in our culture? The way we live our lives, the things that we say, are we aligning ourselves with people of power and influence or with the marginalized people? that Jesus did. This mindset is so insidious, it can just weave its way into us and we're not even aware of it. I remember um, when I was in college, I went to a Christian university. And I was in a class where the professor was a former missionary. He had gone down into Africa and and, uh, uh, ministered to unreached peoples. And he said that their strategy was when they would come into a new village that they would really focus on the chief or the elders or the people who had the most influence within the culture. And he said that was the most effective strategy because if you could get them converted, then very often the entire village would go with them. And it makes perfect sense, but I, I couldn't help myself. I just I raised my hand and I said, if that's the best strategy, why didn't Jesus do that? When Jesus started his ministry, he didn't go to the corridors of power. He went out to just common folks. And sometimes, not just the common people, the ones that were actually rejected by their society, prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers. It was one of the things that the people in power, the people in religious power, hated about him, is that he was hanging out with with sinners Maybe it's not power that we're looking for, but are our values different than the values that are in the world? Or are we compromising those values to curry favor with people? 
I uh, read in the newspaper recently the story of a church back east where the pastor had been fired uh, because it was discovered that he had been unfaithful to his wife. It was just a really tragic story. But I was, as I was reading through the, the story, I discovered another, what I thought was a tragedy. His church was a very large church, um, attracted a large number of people, and it kind of became the cool place for celebrities to go to. And the pastor really liked that a lot. And so what he did is down in the front of the church, he roped off a special VIP section that regular congregants couldn't sit in. Only the celebrities could sit there. And there was one professional athlete who attended who who liked to just slip in the back and kind of sit back there incognito. Well, what did the, the pastor do? He, he instructed the ushers, when you see a celebrity, make sure you bring them down front where everybody can see that they're going to our church. Knowing what we know about Jesus, can you think of anything less Christ-like than a VIP section in church that's reserved for the rich and the famous and the powerful? Now, again, it's, it's really easy, right, for us to point fingers at other people, but what about us? Who do we align ourselves with? At work, do you treat the CEO of your company different than you treat the janitor? Do we treat people who can um, influence our career well differently than people who can't do anything for us? As I said, it's really insidious. It's really easy to slip into that mindset and away from the mindset that Jesus had. It is possible, though, because I saw it recently in a biography I read about John Lewis, who passed away this last year. He was an icon in the civil rights movement. At age 25, he, he spoke at the March on Washington along with Martin Luther King. Just a remarkable Man, I'm sure you've heard his story about how he was just mercilessly beaten. His skull was fractured. He led that that march across the bridge, trying to get the marginalized people in society to have the same rights as the rich and the powerful. What I didn't realize is how much of his work was driven by his faith, that he saw that as his mission, as his calling. And what, I, what really struck me is all those times he was beaten with sticks in the head and he was spit on, not once, not once did he ever fight back. He didn't even defend himself. I was struck how often he talked about God's love and even the love he had for the people that were beating him. How do you do that? How do you develop that kind of a mindset? There's this great, great quote from the book. The author of the biography was John Meacham. He wrote this. Lewis did not doubt the Christian story to which he gave his heart and his mind and his spirit commands us to open our arms, not to clench our fists, to give, not to take, to see, not to look away. So how do we develop this kind of mindset? How do we come counter-cultural 
Christians. Jesus sets such a high bar, and we know we're not going to reach it all the time. So the first thing is just full recognition of God's grace. But I think the way to do it is to immerse ourselves in Jesus's teachings, in Jesus's life. A way I would recommend you might try that with the new year coming up here within just a few days. One of the things I've done, I didn't do this last year and I really regret it, but for about seven or eight years, I begin the year by just immersing myself in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what I do. The first day I do it, if I can, I do it on January 1st. I just sit down and I read through it. It's Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It takes 15 or 20 minutes. Get a sense of the breadth and the depth of what Jesus is teaching. And then I take each day and I just go through it and I just sit with a very small section. Sometimes it's a, a sentence. Sometimes it's a verse. Sometimes it's just a single word. And what I do, and I find this really helpful, is I journal in it. I don't have anything really fancy. I just have these little notebooks. But just the physical act of writing things down, what I'm thinking about, really helps me a lot. And just marinate in that teaching as a, as a kind of a buffer against all the messages we receive in the world. Because, see, Jesus calls us to live a very different life than what the world teaches us. See, in the world, it teaches us that we're defined by our wealth, by our status, and by our power. But Jesus aligned himself with the very lowest people in his culture, and he taught that it's difficult for the rich to get into heaven and that we can't serve both God and money. The world says that fortune favors the bold. Jesus says that the poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven, and the meek inherit the earth. The world encourages us to develop a, a spirit of um, criticism, Social media sometimes is just a cesspool of negativity. Jesus said that until we remove the log from our own eye, don't worry about that splinter in somebody else's eye. The world says we need to stand up for ourselves and fight for our personal rights. Jesus said, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Give to anyone who asks of you. If someone, if someone steals your jacket, give them your shirt. And most amazingly, and what has got to be the most countercultural command in all of Scripture, he said we are to love our enemies. That's right. Not attack, not ignore, not even tolerate love our enemies. If we consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus, we need to go where Jesus went. We need to live out his teachings. 
And yes, again, we're going to do that imperfectly. But think about this for a minute. What is it that sets you apart from your culture? Could someone looking at your life detect any difference between you and somebody who isn't following Jesus? And again, this isn't to lay on a guilt trip. I know this is difficult to do. But we are entering into a new year, a year that I know we all hope is a much better one. What a great way to start the year, to live out the calling that Jesus has placed on us, to become Jesus' feet and his hands in the community, to be the people that Jesus called us to be. Let's pray. God, this isn't easy. This isn't an easy story. It's not an easy thing to deal with. And your calling on us is tough. And it's so easy to just sit back and relax and just kind of go with the flow of our culture, God. But we know that isn't what you've called us to do. So God, in this coming year, we just ask that we would be the people that you call us to be. Help us to fight against our culture. Help us to reach out to the marginalized Help us to love our enemies, God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.